0: everyone and welcome back to Close Up with Aurelian magazine. We're your hosts Amelia and Kaya and today we have Lauren McAbee. Hello, <laughs> thank you for joining us. That was
1: a very enthusiastic hello.
0: I <laughs> <laughs> love it. Uh, Lauren's a portrait, documentary and fashion photographer who takes the most amazing photographs and has worked with clients such as Selena McCartney, Vice, The Face. And Ace and Tate. I love Ace and Tate. They're amazing. Me and yeah, Amelia I
2: have this, literal the same frames from Ace and Tate. We're obsessed. <laughs>
1: They're really great. So Ace and
2: Tate are listening, send <laughs> us some <glasses.
1: laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> the, the project I actually did with, with Ace and Tate was based on Manchester Created. So if we were to do it again, we could have incorporated you guys. <laughs> Can Next I go back time? Yeah.
2: At all? <laughs> uh, yeah so it really is so great to have you. Uh, we're both huge fans of your work, um, and as soon as you started the podcast, you were one of our dream guests. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank
1: you. That's um, really kind.
2: You're welcome. So um, first of all, just to get into it, so you are London. You, you're London based, usually, aren't you? But and originally from Manchester, but you're in Manchester right
1: now. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So I I'm from South Manchester lived here, yeah, all my life, studied here, went to school here. And then um, I did like an art foundation in Manchester at MMU. And then after that, I went to Brighton for university. And it's weird because like now that actually seems like such a drastic move. But at the time I was just like, why would anyone not want to go to Brighton. I was like it's by the sea. It's so much fun. Like I just I went to the open day and I was like oh my god it's like being on holiday all the time. Um so yeah, I went there which which was quite far away. Um but I really enjoyed being there and then I've been in London since I graduated in 2015. Um But I have been back in Manchester for a year now due to complications with the um, pandemic, which we might go on a bit later. But um, yeah, my my dad was ill and I ended up coming home to kind of look after him. And I've been here since. And um, I'm kind of I'm figuring it out, really, because I feel like I've got a new lease of love for Manchester, which I've kind of found like, I don't know, just through like how brilliantly diverse the city is and what it's got to. I don't know, there's so much more for it to, that for me to explore, but at the same time, nothing's open, so you can't actually, it's weird, I haven't lived here since I was 17, 18, and now I'm back here like 10 years later and I'm like, I don't really know what it's about anymore. But um, we'll get there, you know, hopefully this summer. (laughs) (laughs) So are you
2: still trying to figure out both cities? Do you have any idea where you're going to settle or are you still, like, considering them both as
1: options? I think for me, like, London was the place where I established my career and where I've ended up having so many opportunities and where most of my friends are and work is. But I think when it comes to, like, maybe more long-term at some point in the future, like, I just... I love Manchester as a city and like my family are here so I think I probably would look at being here like in the future but at the moment I feel like I need to be back in London for for a bit just to kind of I don't know that's where all of my clients are and that's where my friends are so yeah I don't know but I, I love both I feel like you can get good things out of both cities. Yeah uh,
2: and now that you're back in Manchester are you in your in the house that you
1: grew up in are you with um your mum yeah so I yeah it's quite strange really I mean the house has changed quite a bit since then but yeah it's like the house that I grew up in and it's like quite strange that like a lot of people that i went to school with still live here and like i went to Tesco the other day and i like just recognised someone i was like oh i'm sure they're in my year at school and it's like that kind of weird thing that you just get when you're <laughs> like at home um but yeah it's really lovely and there's so many green spaces around and uh, yeah i've been living in my mum's house with my boyfriend um since the pandemic began and now we're kind of figuring out where to move to in london or whether to stay here yeah we'll see
2: sounds like there's a lot of big decisions to be made there it does feel like that yeah yeah are you finding it strange to be back in your old home because it's like going from independence to being back in the family house i I had to do that not long ago, and I found it
1: really strange it definitely is strange I think for me, like basically, I came back for one weekend in March last year um just for a weekend just when things were getting a bit weird with coronavirus and like everyone was a bit I guess there was just quite a lot of panic. Um, And I just came back for a weekend to see my family. And then on that Monday, my dad was like, I just want to let you know, like, I have got a test today. Like, it's quite a routine thing, but I'll just, like, keep you in the loop. Um, So I was like, oh, I'll just stay for that test. And then my dad had the test... um, And it turned out he had bowel cancer and um, that was like a huge shock. He was so fit and healthy. So like for me, being home since everything that had happened has been a very different experience. And I think most people staying at home, because like I essentially came back for one weekend. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. Then the lockdown happened. And then my dad's condition, which was originally diagnosed as being hopefully curable cancer. And there was this planning case for chemo and everything ended up quite quickly deteriorating, a lot of the decisions went wrong. So in short, my my dad died within six months of his diagnosis. And it was like a really, really traumatic six months. And then yesterday was actually the six month anniversary of his death of his death. So it kind of, it's just so weird the way that literally within six months that happened. And I think since then, like being in the family home has actually been quite comforting, because I don't know, there's like it feels like I'm kind of in a big hug <laughs> a lot of the time, which I think has been nice. And a lot of people that move home end up having arguments with their parents or it gets stressful. And actually, yeah, I don't know. I guess your mum will always kind of mother you in certain ways. And maybe your dad would if he was, you know, that's kind of just the way that parents are, aren't they? But um, for me, it's been a good thing, I think. It sounds like you're in the kind of
0: most perfect place that you need to be for what you need right now.
1: I think so. I mean, I think... I think with grief, it's something that like I'd never experienced quite so intensely with someone so close to me before. And like I've had grandparents die and that's been really sad. But they've been at an age which is like, you know, oh, they've lived a long life. But with my dad, it was so so shocking and traumatic, like the series of events that happened that I think processing that and coming to terms with it and just like not having the pressure of running around London or like trying to see too many people at once has actually been a really good thing because it's just like time to process things. Um and I'm trying to make work alongside it, but that is quite a weird thing in itself because I think now people I think there's a weird thing that happens with grief. And sorry this has become about grief rather than my work. But I think um I think in my head I was like oh when someone dies you get really, really sad and then you like gradually kind of get better over a period of time and maybe that does happen like I can hear a siren (laughs) and maybe that does happen like in the long um term but I think right now for me I'm like I can still work. Like when I work, I don't think about my dad. But then the next day, maybe I listen to a piece of music that does make me think about my dad. And then that makes me upset. Like, it's not very linear, I guess, is what I'm kind of trying to say. And I think figuring that out has been quite a learning curve for me and my family, really, because I think we're all a bit taken aback at times when you don't necessarily expect to be.
2: Yeah, I'm glad that you brought it up um, because one, not only this is more about you than your work, and also, you know, it's incredibly important to have open and honest conversations about grief but also because you did the amazing photo series um for vice uh about your dad's illness um and of course that was published and then your dad passed away and it went viral um so I was just wondering were you expecting that kind of reaction from the article
1: that was a really weird thing because I think so when my dad was diagnosed i um, I think a lot of people at that time were making work about the pandemic and they were taking portraits of people with masks and it was all very like oh take pictures like in this moment and um I didn't really want to do that but um I was like oh well my dad has just been diagnosed with cancer so like I could document the process of him going through chemo and getting better throughout the pandemic so when I started taking the pictures of my dad it was never with a view that he was I never we didn't think he was going to die at that point. I was taking those images kind of in in, in anticipation of him getting better and like that process. And when I was taking those, I was kind of thinking, oh, this is him when he's really ill, but it's, it's going to get better. And now looking at those images, like he looks so well and so much more himself than the physical deterioration that we saw so quickly. And I think for me, that series is now incredibly important, but I never would have made it I think if we'd found out it was terminal from the offset, because I think I wouldn't have felt like I could have photographed knowing. I don't know. I think there's just something about knowing that they might have been his last months or weeks. I don't know if I could have done in the same way. Um, And then I approached Vice and I was like, look, the diagnosis has gone from being hopefully treatable and curative to being palliative. So how do we approach that? And they were like, well, we're still happy to run it if you're happy with that. And I was just kind of like, well yeah, maybe it's good to to kind of raise awareness. Um, so, yeah, that was hard. And, like, a lot of people have got a lot of opinions, as I'm sure you guys know from publishing anything online. Like, there's been quite a lot of... So many people being so incredibly supportive. But also, like quite a, a bit of hate not loads but like people being like oh you um you should have given your dad kefir water because that's that could have saved him or someone being like I can't believe you didn't give your dad t- cannabis or cannabis oil every day like that would have saved him like you aren't like someone being like oh your dad would have died anyway like I don't know why you're making a big deal about it um and it's funny because you know they were quite there weren't many of them but those things they hurt you know and it's like I don't know, that just became that. Yeah, that got really frustrating um, and upsetting at times. But there was a lot of love. There was a lot of love. So, yeah, that was good. It's like anything,
2: though, isn't it? Especially, well, especially with grief, if you can just get so lost in all of the well wishes because you you do such an outpouring of support. But the things that people say that mean, they really stick with you. And I think that's why they do it. 'Cause these people are just awful
1: and they want a reaction out of you. Yeah. yeah. Um I just don't quite understand. But like, I think the people that and, and to be honest, I had very little hate, but the like the few comments that I did have that were basically telling me that like if I'd done something differently, my dad wouldn't have died, or like I don't know, it's just like in when when you're dealing with this, it's like someone saying that to you when you already feel there's a lot of guilt around grief like things like wishing like maybe we should have done that differently maybe we should have contacted that doctor or and I don't know all of those what ifs then when someone else is saying it to you it kind of yeah it's not it's not nice it's not nice
2: no it's not but so now with that in mind when you look back on the project um because obviously you said that you wouldn't have made it if you'd known it was um not going to be cured how does it make you feel now are you glad that it's out there
1: I am glad. And I'm also really glad that the images that I put out of dad are where he looks relatively well. Like at that point, he did have cancer and he probably was dying from cancer. But like I we didn't know that and he didn't look that ill. He still looked like dad. And I think um, there were a few images I took of him like when he looks quite a lot more ill. And I'm really glad that I didn't use those images because I think that would just be like burned into my brain forever. And like I don't really want to I want to acknowledge ill dad, but I don't want to remember ill dad if that makes sense I want I want to remember like how he looked like for most of my life with him and how great he was and how fun he was and fit and healthy so yeah I do feel good about it I do feel positive but I didn't take many pictures I think I only shot like three rolls of film um but it's just the what the images that I did take did happen to be the right kind of thing for it so yeah
0: and how did your dad feel at the time to be a subject I don't know if you um have people you know personally as your subjects how, how did he feel at the time to be subjective of, of your photography?
1: I think my dad's always just sort of been a bit confused as to why I'd take pictures of him like whenever we're on holiday or whether I'm at home like I'll often just take portraits of like my family on holiday or I don't know just like portraits here and there and he's never really understood why I don't think I think he, he doesn't mind like he's never he's never cared um but I think when the article was published he was actually in a hospice at that point it was a really wonderful hospice called St Anne's Hospice and when the article was published he was he was he was dying but he knew, he he's had a sense of awareness. And I told him it had just been published. I was like, D- look, Dad, look at all this love for you, like all these people that are saying these amazing things. And he was just like, why do people care? And I was like, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's touched people, maybe, maybe it's just like it struck a chord or whatever. And my dad was just like they are just some pictures of me in the garden. And I was like, thanks, you know, fair enough. But like, I think um, those everyday moments are kind of what summed it up for me rather than like a really formal portrait. It kind of felt like, uh, it felt important for me to document those in-between moments rather than it feeling very staged, I suppose.
0: Well, you can always count on dads to keep
1: it real, can't you? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, I think my my dad's sense of humour is very dry and he's always been um, kind of, I don't know, he always pushes it a little bit far with, like, making jokes, not in a mean way, but just, like, just, yeah, I don't know. He's, he's always been that kind of person, so it wasn't out of character for him to be like, why, why are you doing this? Like, why does anyone care? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe you're pretty great.
2: <laughs> if you talk to anyone uh, who's lost a parent, of course, they always say one of the worst things that can ever happen to a person is losing one of their parents, and hearing you speak about losing your dad, you're full of so much strength, and you're just really, like, such... It's so inspirational to hear, and it's just, I'm sure, going to be comforting to so many people. Um, and, of course, you mentioned that before losing your dad, you'd lost grandparents, but the grief wasn't the same. Um, what have you learned about yourself through the grieving process? Uh, have you surprised yourself with your strength, or what's it been like? Do you know what? When
1: you're in it, like, when you're literally nursing someone who is, who is dying, you... Um, you you just go into autopilot, like, I don't think, in, in retrospect, it was absolutely mad what we did, like, sometimes we would do night shifts, where my mum would, like, look after my dad, um, up to a certain point, and then me and my sister would, and we'd, like, wake each other up with alarms, and then, like, there'd always be someone outside the door in case, like, he felt particularly ill, or he needed help, so, like, I don't know. I am really impressed with how we got through it. Um, You also just realise how incredible nurses are. Like there were some points where there were like up to 20 nurses coming to our house a day. um, And my dad wanted to die at home. Sadly, we couldn't do that in the end. Um, But the strength that you, I think it just happens. Like when someone that you just absolutely adore is dying, you will just do anything for them. And you just realise like there is that superhuman power within so many people when you're under that pressure, I also think that like the close community around us became incred- incredibly important. Like our next door neighbours, obviously we couldn't see any friends. Like you know, a lot of people never saw my dad when he was ill. But like our next door neighbours often dropped around food through our back door every every couple of days. The neighbours across the road made us brownies. Like we got sent flowers. Like the love from people around us and the the way that that helps your strength was just like amazing. Like food, food is so important when someone's dying. Like I don't know i don't know i think when people are wonder what to do when someone's dying like you don't um you don't look after yourself like you hardly eat because you're just in autopilot of like that's all you think that matters so yeah food food is a really great comfort um but in terms of finding strength like i think you just find it like in the depths of your of who you are just because you have to because there's no other option
2: yeah and how do you find that you're feeling day to day at the moment
1: do you feel good? Are you okay? Um, it's it's quite up and down. Like I think the six month anniversary hit me a bit harder than I was expecting, just because it's six months and like nothing's really happened in six months. You know, the world's still been shut down. We haven't been able to like go to Dad's favourite places that I'm sure we'd really love to do. We haven't been able to have a memorial for Dad, which like we had such a small funeral, and I actually quite enjoyed it being small because I think I would have found it overwhelming. But there are things that I'd like to do in memory of him which we can't do. Um, but to be honest, like day to day, I'm pretty okay. Like it's not. Um, there's every so often something trigger, like a song or like I don't know, a text or like sometimes you know when your phone gives you a memory of like an image. Um, that 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 I find hard. But like sometimes it's just really good to cry as well. Like I'm not. Um, I I think. I'm, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I just let myself feel it, and then other times I'm like, no, nope, don't want to deal with that right now. Like I'll do that tomorrow. Like I'll. But for now, um, yeah, I'm I'm OK. And I think as a family, like we've all, because we all experience it so intensely, we've all been helping each other. So, yeah, it's been it's been OK, as OK as it can be in the circumstances, I think. Good.
0: Um, yeah, it's, I, I, it's so good how you say that, you know, grief is because I always assume that grief is kind of, you know as time moves on as the years go by you start to like almost forget about it but it's not really is it like it's kind of like safe like a memory comes up and it was like this time last year you were doing this with this person it's like wow that's it's so strange to think like how different it was a year ago
1: yeah and I think like a lot of people have described it to me as like and it's it is a little bit cheesy but kind of like waves like at the like a bit basically at the beginning they're really big waves that crash and it like kind of brings you to your knees and it's really awful and then over time the waves become kind of smaller and like you know there might be a moment in a year or two years time when it will suddenly make me feel awful but at the moment you know it it's kind of yeah, I don't know. It, it doesn't, basically, I'm not permanently sad, but I'm not permanently happy. Like there are days when I feel okay. And there are days when it's, it's particularly hard. Um But it, I think being freelance was great at first, because I was like, Oh, now I can just put all that aside. I'm I'm just going to focus on me and my family and like processing what's happened. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, I'd love to be doing some more work, because I feel like I want to put my energy into something. Not all the time, but that'd be nice. But now I think, because of the pandemic, because I've not been in London for a while, and because, I don't know, people think that I'm just sad all the time. I, I'm, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not working as much, and I'd really like to be... I'm trying to do personal projects, but it's just not a very inspiring time, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no
2: it isn't Uh, and that leads me on to something I was going to ask you with regards to your photography so of course like this um the project you did with Vice that exists because you're a photographer and you have those photographs that you've taken of subjects in your normal life because you're a photographer so just to go straight back to the beginning how did you get into photography I'm sure you get asked this all the time but are there any defining moments for you
1: that you remember you know feeling like yes this is what I want to do um, I just remember being because you, you couldn't do photography as a GCSE at my school, but you could do art, and I just remember doing art and like I just was so crap at painting. So my door keeps and closing. I was just so bad at painting, and I just found it so boring, like how long it took, and I was like, art oh, sculpture's not really for me. I just got bored easily, and with photography, it felt like a way to like it was just instant. I was like, ah, oh, that's that's just the final thing like it's just there so um yeah i i use like a really i had like a t- you know those cameras people used to take to parties like when you're in like your 10 and 11 they're like these little like a little um oh it's like a little olympus it was a crap digital camera basically and I just would use that. Do you know the ones I mean? Are like cool pictures? and The
2: ones on the front and that you would like you'd slide it open. Yeah yeah yeah. Slide it, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: I, yeah. Um, I just used to take them to parties and document like l- I literally just took pictures of everything like if my friends were going to the park for the for the day I'd take pictures if I was just going to school I'd take my camera if I wanted to like try and I'd, I mean I took some awful pictures but for like my art GCSE I'd just like take pictures on the weekend with friends that would be willing to model like it just kind of I've just always really enjoyed taking pictures and now I think I'm so grateful that I've got all these pictures like you know especially like of my dad and stuff just over the time because I've got this like incredible archive of like yeah I don't know images that I've taken for work but also just of my friends which is really nice so yeah I started um I just became really interested in photography quite early on like at like i guess year 10 or whatever and then uh art foundation became more interested in it and then studied photography in brighton and um didn't really know what i was doing for quite a long time like i think the course in brighton was quite a lot more fine art than maybe i needed at the time um there were a lot of pictures of landscapes and trees a lot of it was like large format it was all very there's loads of trees basically like and it's it's kind of strange now because like my final project that i did at uni was about centre parks. And I took pictures. (laughs) It's so odd. I was like, oh, I'm really interested in the juxtaposition of, like, man-made and, like, nature. So, like, centre parks is, like, this weird antithesis of that. So I took pictures of, like... Oh, I don't know. I just took pictures of like the the water slides through some trees, and then like, oh, it's very odd. I don't really know what I was thinking. But doing that project made <laughs> made me realise that I didn't want to take pictures of trees. I was like, God, I'm really interested in people. Like, why am I taking pictures of trees? So, um, uni made me realise what I didn't want to do, rather than like what I did want to do, which which was actually equally helpful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Can you remember? <sighs> Some of the first moments you had me realise that you were talented at photography? Because I mean, I, I thought at one point that I wanted to be a photographer, and <laughs> I'm just glad I didn't <laughs> pursue it because that is not where my talents lie. And you remember, like, who was there anyone that, like, especially championed or believed in you, or a moment?
1: Um, I think when i was so when i was at home and like basically my sister was just the most willing model and she like little sisters like just really helped photograph older older sisters out cuz like i just took so many pictures of her and i think taking pictures of my sister um made me really I don't know, I just, I just really enjoyed it. And I think, well, I don't know how much... I think she enjoyed it. I think there were times when she was probably like, oh, Lauren. Um, but on the whole, like, that that taking pictures of my sister, I think, made me realise that, oh, this is kind of a body of work now, and I'm quite proud of it. And then um, I was asked by Refinery29, like, quite early on, like, after I graduated, if I could do a big project about sisters. And they were like, you can just go around the country photographing different groups of sisters. Like, you can choose them, you can, like, you know you just do it all, you've got, like, two months, I think. Um, and that was just such a nice moment to be like, oh, like, those pictures that I took of my sister have now translated into, like, a project for an online platform that I really rated. Um, so that felt like quite a, a nice moment, I guess. Um, but I think you're also just always learning and evolving your style. Like, I can I don't know, I look back at images I took even a year ago and I'm like, oh, I wish I'd done that differently. Like, I wish I'd done that in a better way or light, I don't know, I, I think you, like... I think it's good to be self-critical, but I think you're always learning and always developing your style as well. Um, so I don't... There's not that many projects, to be honest, that I look at and I feel really proud of, <laughs> which is maybe bad.
0: That's so, sh- like, shocking to me because just looking at your portfolio, it's amazing. Like, you just really capture the essence of people and, like, who they are through through the photo. It's, it's so That's- good. Do, do you still feel like you... Um, photograph for pleasure or does it just feel
1: like work and a job now? Um, I think there was definitely a point because like I used to have my camera with me at all times it was like annoying because I'd have to bring a ba- big bag out like to wherever I went to bring my camera um, but now it, it got to a point a couple of years ago where I was like oh it does really feel like a job now especially when I do you do quite a lot of commercial work but I think a lot of the work when I was at school I was always really interested in sociology and we could study sociology is a GCSE at my school and I don't know why I think every single school it should be mandatory to study sociology because like you learn so much about like the world <laughs> in like when you're relatively young that like kind of forms your opinions and who you are and I think that basically studying people and sociology then meant that I had such an interest in people and like I don't know I just I just love studying people yeah And I think that that the love for that in sociology then translated through photography, Um, which is why like I I've been finding the pandemic really annoying because, well, on a lot of levels. And I know a lot of people have, but like I love photographing groups of people and subcultures and places where people come together and meet. And like, you know, I did this project for the face magazine photographing drake fans before they went into the o2 arena and it was just so interesting like the demographic of people and the way that people dress and the way that like i don't know going to a big concert now is like going to prom like people go in on like the way that they dress and i think i've become so interested in that and the way that particularly like teenagers in like i don't know just youth hold themselves and like what it means to feel like you're part of that group and how important that is when you're that age um so yeah I I do love people and I've always had this interest in studying people but I feel like there's just always so much more that you could do um so yeah I don't really feel like that accomplished in a lot of ways because I feel like there's just always more to explore
2: that's a good way to be though isn't it because I mean there's always that thing with work where you, you feel like if you've done if you've reached your goal of becoming a photographer then what's next but it's good to always be evolving um so, I mean, it's completely fair enough that you don't have a favourite uh, job so far or anything like that, but is there a, a portrait that you've taken that stands out the most to you? Because, I mean, we were really looking through your portfolio um, earlier in the week and we were just, like, so amazed at the people that you photographed. Uh, <laughs> Amelia was like, the hot priest? I was like, I know!
1: <laughs> that was a good one. Do you know what? They're so quick, like, with the, with the hot priest. Um, also, it was weird because, like, obviously I like most people on the planet have watched Fleabag and was obsessed with it. And um, it was really short notice and we had so little time. And I think, like, I started off, the way that I got into shooting editorials and, like, commercial work was actually through shooting behind-the-scenes stuff. And when I shoot, I used to shoot a lot of behind-the-scenes at Fashion Week and, like, on other photographers' shoots and you just learn so much from being in those situations and I'd really recommend any photographers that are, like, starting out to do that because you... I would go to a shoot and, like, be shooting behind the scenes and just, like, literally just take notes of, like, how... Literally how people held themselves, what people did, the different jobs. Like, I think you can learn so much from that kind of thing. And then through being, like, doing behind-the-scenes shoots with, like, sometimes relatively famous people, I feel like I just... I was like, oh, they're just... They are just people. It's just that they're just people that we put so much... I don't know there's just so much weight that comes with being a celebrity and yeah with, with the hot priest you know, straight away I was just like oh you're just you're just really normal and you're just yeah we've we've got like a couple of hours to take some pictures around this hotel and like we I think also because there wasn't like a set for that we were literally just shooting on the streets around um this hotel in West London um it felt very candid and easy and I think sometimes like when you're photographing talent, literally just walking with them and chatting to them about their day or like what they're up to kind of breaks down a bit of a barrier, which is quite nice. Um, so I do really like that series. I think my favourite series is probably the series I shot for the face when we went to Reading Festival and we photographed all the kids that were, like, going to Reading Festival for the first time and were all at a point in their lives where, you know, you just think you're so old. Like, you just think you know everything about the world. And, like, a lot of people were getting really drunk for the first time. Like, there are some people there just, like... I don't know, probably taking drugs for the first time and like the conversations that we had, I don't know, I just felt so nostalgic but also like kind of in in some ways like loved that period of time in my life but some ways I was like I'm so glad I'm not that age now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I totally get that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Reading and Leeds is such a rite of passage
1: isn't it? (laughs) Truly like I remember because I went to Leeds which like having now photographed Reading I'm like Leeds is absolute chaos compared to Reading like Reading is is pretty mad but Leeds is just like it's wet you're in this like forest there's like just muddy fields everywhere it rains so much more. Tents on fire everywhere. And like I remember on the last day of Leeds (laughs) festival when I just finished my GCSEs I I came home and like I was like just absolutely exhausted I went to go and sleep and then my dad woke up in the middle of the night and was like I had to put your bag outside because it really smelt and I was like what do you mean and he was like your bag's in the garden it's like a <laughs> big rucksack so I went outside and basically somehow there'd been a big food fight on the last day of the festival and there was a raw chicken in my bag there was actually a whole oh. raw chicken but who brings a raw chicken to a festival that is like that is the thing that I'm most confused about. That's the question. Yeah. Oh, and I like, how did it end up in my like there was so much there was loads of shit in there, but like the fact that there was just this raw chicken and then I felt like I, I went outside into like this beautiful garden on a sunny day and there was just like this rucksack with a raw chicken and I was like, oh, this really sums up my experience.
2: <laughs> I would watch a Netflix documentary on that chicken. Who put it
1: there? How did it get there?
2: Well we were camping. <laughs> let's so, see the we we were camping there.
1: on the edge of like blue unread or something and I just think don't camp in between two different camps because then shit happens on the last day um but yeah I think that kind of thing like that rite of passage and that like that time in your life is just such a it's just a really weird time and you um I just think a lot changes as well in who you are as a person so it was really interesting going back like nearly 10 years after I went to Leeds to photograph Reading and like these kids that are going through the same thing um so yeah, I I really like that project.
0: Oh, it's so nice. I do really mm. feel like when you're that age and you get you're doing things for the first time. You you're just like really on the cusp of adulthood and you think you know everything. But yeah, like I was looking at some photos, you know, and you just get really stuck looking at old photos and I was just looking at myself and I was like, You're such a child, like you've no idea. But it's just like I don't know, it's love it is a lovely age, but like you say, it's it's um nice to be a bit older and a bit more independent a bit
1: more kind of knowing a bit more about life <laughs> yeah definitely no that's definitely. that's how I feel but I think I've I've got this weird attraction to photographing either like I don't know teenagers and young people or like way older people I, and I realize that like whenever I'm putting together my portfolio or anything I'm like I just miss out like this whole bracket of people in their 30s 40s and 50s like I just don't know what don't know why I'm just like <laughs> no just like not for me <laughs> it's quite strange really don't know why I don't know whether I spoke to some photographers about it a while ago and we were like because we both kind of agreed that we're more interested in that kind of thing and then we were like I don't know whether it's because when you're I don't know now I'm thinking back to an age that I was and like reminiscing and then I guess people that are like quite a lot older that's an age that I'm so far away from that I'm intrigued by but the age that I am right now I'm kind of like not as bothered about documenting because that's who I am it's not as interesting I don't know even though obviously there's Mm. so much scope within that and so many different people in the world it just kind of yeah I don't know maybe it's not that just when you get older you'll look back and you'll be like oh and you'll be thinking like all sorts of (laughs) things yeah true but that's quite nice as a photographer though the way that like documentary photography particularly over like a period of time ends up having more meaning um because it was, like, some of the pictures, like, that I've taken at Reading and these like, they're all, like, topless, they've all got their little man bags, they've all got, like, the exact same shorts on, like, that's such a thing of that time, like, I feel like even in 10 years' time, people will be like, oh, that's a bit cringe, or, like, that's a bit weird, isn't it, um, <laughs> but, yeah, I like, I, I think, I like that power photography has, yeah.
2: I saw a, a photograph that someone took the other day and it was just of like three guys and they were all wearing that Topshop, that Topman t-shirt. Do you remember it had Rihanna on the front and she said <laughs> yeah. hair? The loud <laughs> one. And I was like, wow, that is just literally, it's just frozen in time, that era, isn't it? Part of
1: me does feel quite sorry though for boys because I feel like Topman and H&M were like the only, I mean Topshop was also pretty awful for girls at that age to be fair, but like I feel like girls today, are, people are just so much cooler. Like, we were... I don't know. I mean, you guys think are a bit younger than me. But, like, I look back at pictures and I had, like... Like, I used to dye my hair black. I had this huge side fringe. Like, I really thought I was a scene... No, I had that. Did you? I really thought I yeah. was a scene I had side fringe. And, like, I just, like, right... Like... I don't know, on Tumblr or MySpace, people would be like, oh, i just, like, see you at Urbis or whatever. And you just go and sit at yeah. Urbis, but not talk to anyone. You just, like, sit there and, like, kind of look around and be like, yeah, this, uh, these are my people, but I'm not going to speak to them. Like, it's such a weird thing. Lauren, that was
2: my life. <laughs> you talk about my life. I don't think we're... I mean, I'm 25. How old are you? I'm 28. <laughs> yeah, so you we're all pretty much the same. Yeah, that was my life. We would, like, yeah. organize meetups on Urbis and go and just, like have made the most outrageous effort to look like a scene kid ever, even though that's not who I was in my normal life. And yeah, I would just sit there on my phone and just be like super nervous.
1: Good. I bet we were sat a couple of metres away from each other. We just didn't actually (laughs) chat to each other because we were too weird and awkward.
2: (laughs) we definitely were um god i'm having
1: like really intense flashbacks
2: now like getting the bus home like that was an amazing day and really i just hadn't spoken to an, a soul literally the same thing go back and write about our myspace oh <laughs> god really so
1: funny <laughs> weird times
2: as well um Amelia and I are working on really magazine. We are sort of hyper-aware now, I think, of industries that are sort of male-dominated, um, especially because we're coming out from a journalism angle where it's um, 55% male. How do you find the photography industry, obviously, in my modelling work, the majority of people I work with are men. So when I get to work with a woman,
1: uh, I find it really refreshing.
2: I don't know if that's a yeah. Manchester thing.
1: I think um like there is a statistic cause it was international women's day the other day there was a, a statist- statistic that I saw um which I reposted which was something like oh, I can't remember off the top of my head now so it's not that powerful but it was like something like 90% of like graduates are um women for, from photography um but then only 15% of people in the industry are women um which is quite a shocking statistic really um when you think about like how many photography courses there are and how many female photographers there are that, like, maybe aren't reaching their potential because just the industry is so biased um, and so kind of systemically misogynistic. Um, I think, yeah, there are definitely way more men. There are definitely, like, on sets a lot of the time, like, there are female producers, but, like, the people at the top are often men, like, the clients are often men. Um, Often, I don't know, I mean, I think because... In, in London, I feel like there's like a group of female photographers that like we all know each other's work and we all kind of like hype each other up a bit. But I think, I feel like there's probably more than there are just because like you kind of, you know, when you find a group of people that's similar to you, you kind of like hold them close as such. Um, so I do feel like in, I, I, I feel like it's getting a little bit better and I think that brands are slightly more aware of it, but that statistic just like, yeah, did really shock me. Um, and I think essentially like, often the the bigger jobs and the jobs with more responsibility or more money often do still go to men um and I think that's something that yeah there's not there's not enough being done to change um and also just in terms of like privilege like the fact that I felt like the only decision that I could do after uni was to go to London because Manchester there was hardly any work and I felt like that was the only place I could go and it's like the only reason I could do that is because my uncle had a flat in North London and a of, like at where I could stay and if I didn't have that like there was no way I would have had access to London and I think that's a whole different conversation as well but like often you're on shoots and it's like oh like that intern is actually that client's daughter or that client's best friend's thick. like it's like so it's just it's just how it is and it's like well <laughs> I don't know we need to question that a lot more it's really it's just really bad because also it often means that so much good talent gets overlooked or just isn't heard because people don't provide a space for those voices which is such a shame the world would be such a better place if nepotism didn't exist really would
0: absolutely awful and
1: also like I've been doing quite a lot of portfolio reviews in lockdown like I've, I've been doing quite a lot of lectures over zoom to like universities and stuff and there's so many like wonderful women that have got like a lot of really interesting work but they just don't have the confidence and like I think and part of me is like maybe it's because when you're that age you don't have as much confidence but part of me is also like like I don't know maybe it's just because we've all been taught that like you should you shouldn't make your voices as loud or you shouldn't put your work out too much otherwise you look cocky and I think yeah I don't I don't know it's it's I don't know how we change it I wish there was like a a way around it like the kind of the inequalities with gender and also the privilege like in terms of just this whole industry um like right now I'd love to be like I should just stay in Manchester and get more work here but the bottom line is there's more work for me in London um and that's where it's like I'd love in 10 years time if it was like oh Manchester's like got enough work that I can be here but right now there isn't. But that's, a, I guess, a bit of a different conversation to the gender divide that we were talking about. Mm.
2: Yeah. The London vacuum, it's just yeah. annoys me so much. I know. Obviously, I know. it's so real, but it's just, it's so frustrating. But yeah, um, it's yes. interesting that you said that about the industry because I've always thought that, but obviously didn't, didn't really know enough about it to comment. But um, a question that I think question that the last question from me before we spin the wheel anyway is if you could choose one non-male photographer to take your portrait who would you pick?
1: Mm. you know what it's such a weird experience having your portrait taken like I think because I do it so much and I'll often just approach strangers in the street and take their picture and then when it's the other way around like it's terrifying like I don't it makes me kind of think I don't know. I can see why people feel so awkward when they have their picture taken. Um, but in terms <laughs> of someone's work, like I really love um, Laura Panik's work. She takes the most beautiful portraits, um, often documentary kind of style. Um, I love Joe Metz and Scott's work. I think hers is really beautiful in her use of light. Um, a friend that I also like love her work, Holly Fernando. I think she's a brilliant portrait photographer. Um There's a few. God, now I feel like I've just lined up this list of people that I want to take my portrait. Um, (laughs) But no, I I think the way that women often approach work is often uh, just a bit more sensitive. Like, not all the time. Like, I know a lot of brilliant male photographers that do do that as well. But I think when I look at a a woman's body of work or a portrait, I feel like I can see that there's an element of trust there. I can see that there's been a conversation before the photo was taken and that it's the... I really dislike portraits where it feels like the subject is really vulnerable and is being taken advantage of and I think often like there was especially in the 2000s there was so much like male dominated photography of like women that looked so thin and wearing barely nothing and it was often from like quite high angles which I think often makes them look smaller or feel more vulnerable and I think Part of my reaction to that was like when I photograph someone, I want them to feel so comfortable and so happy with who, who they are and how they feel in front of the camera. And I often photograph people from slightly lower angles to kind of and I think sometimes people think that's unflattering. But I'm like, I, I kind of feel like it can be a really empowering thing and it can make often like when I'm working in a commercial way. And I have to photograph real people, and I hate that term, but, like, people that aren't used to being in front of the camera but for a commercial job and there's loads of people around and whatever, I often just end up photographing them from lower angles and making the set feel really small so that they feel like they're on top of the world. Because I think I just really like the reaction when someone that isn't used to being in front of the camera looks at a portrait of them and they're like, oh, cool, like, I look, I look good there. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I just think that's a really satisfying thing. And, like, as a photographer it's such a vulnerable thing for someone to say yes I do not vulnerable that's not the white right word but I think it's just such a big decision for someone to say yes you can take my picture that I don't want to abuse that trust because it's such a yeah I don't know it's such a powerful thing I think a lot of men in the past with like photography have not all men but a lot of them have so I think that's why the way that I work uh, I just want people to feel comfortable and confident in front of the camera.
0: Oh, it's so empowering. It really is, isn't it? Uh
2: It's really good that you brought that up. Obviously, I come at it from a different angle because when you took my photo, it was for a job rather than me being a stranger. But I did actually mention to Amelia that I felt like the care that you took with me was just so good. Like, you made sure, like, that I was fed. You made sure I was warm. You made sure I like, had a robe. Like, you were super reassuring, like, really complimentary. I just felt like extremely well looked after throughout the day which is something that sadly I don't always feel and I think that was because we were two women working together and you obviously wanted me to feel nurtured and looked after so um it made sense then having worked with you and then looking back at your work how the portraits that you get seem so comfortable and intimate because you obviously um curate a very understanding space so I mean, I love that
1: about you, I just think to be behind a camera that's that 's really kind and that makes me really happy so that's that 's a good thing um, but I think it 's just such a i don 't know I think that there's a there 's a power dynamic there because like someone with a camera, you know especially when you 're shooting on film, you can 't see that image like you you want to feel good and I want to make someone feel good, so I think that 's always something that i 've um, liked doing my work, and I also just love chatting to people like I think I used to approach shoots in a very different way. Like now, if I'm do- taking a portrait, I'll spend like 10, 15 minutes chatting to them before I take one picture. Where in the past, I would have probably just taken loads of pictures and hoped there was one good one. But I know now, if I spend more time chatting to someone and being on a level and knowing what they like and don't like or just something about their day, then I feel like there's a, I don't know, there's a bit of trust there and there's a barrier that's been slightly broken down, which then means that the portrait is probably going to be better. Um which which I think is something that you only learn through taking portraits more. I don't think anyone teaches you that. I think, um, yeah, I don't know. You kind of, you just learn through how people react in front of the camera. Mm. So, yeah.
2: Definitely. I think you can definitely feel that with your work as well. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. So, um, Amelia, what do you think about the the wheel? Are we going to spin it? <laughs> it time to spin it?
1: I'm excited, guys.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now that we've loosened you up. <laughs> if a little bit more spontaneous.
0: <laughs> uh yeah, I'm ready for this. So do you want to go first, Amelia? Okay, so it's number fourteen, uh, which is what's some of the best advice you've ever gotten? Oh that's a good one.
1: Oh, this is quite easy to be honest. Um so after I went to university, I very luckily and looking back, I'm like, that was just such a yeah, amazing opportunity. I got an internship with Martin Parr, who's a really brilliant photographer and of someone that I, well, wow. I didn't ni- <laughs> Me and Amelia um, are both open-mouthed. <laughs> <laughs> so I admired his work for such a long time and then I, yeah, I had... Yeah, I interned for him for, like, three or four months and then, like, kind of on and off assisted a little bit on for, like, a, a good few months after that as well. Um, so I was working at the studio in, in London. He They're now based in Bristol. They've moved um, out there and they've got a foundation and a gallery set up. But anyway, when I was working for Martin Parr, every so often we'd have, uh, like, whenever he was in the office, sometimes he'd be like, oh, should I have a quick look at your work? Like, should we have a little crit? and like I remember one time like I had these images I was really proud of and it was only like five pictures but like from like the last couple of shoots I'd done and I asked for his opinion I was like what do you think of these images and he was like yeah yeah they're fine but there's not there's not many and I was like what do you mean he was like well you just you just need to take more pictures and I was like I remember being like oh I mean I'm quite happy with these but whatever um and he was like, <laughs> you only get better just by... He was like, you just need to take more pictures. And I think because I went to a university that felt like there was a lot of, like, you had to really think through this concept and you had to think for hours and, like, critique yourself. And it was like this real... It felt like there was so much build-up to that idea of going out and taking pictures. And never in a million years would I have ever thought about approaching a stranger. And then working with Martin Parr in the way he literally just, like, photographs people on the street and, like, just there's nothing's overthought that I was like oh okay yeah I just need to take more pictures and it's so basic but like I do genuinely think that through taking so many pictures over like quite a long period of time that's really um made me be more critical and improve my work a lot so taking more pictures it's pretty basic but it's true
2: That is, like, the best answer, isn't it, ever? You ask someone a question, they're like, well, when I interned in Martin Park, <laughs> it was so amazing. Oh, God, I'm Martin really Park worried Park now. that. Advice. sounds quite wanky.
1: That sounds a bit wanky, No, doesn't? oh, my God, um, it's absolutely fucking amazing. I was no, it's incredible. But I think I just learned th- so much through that, um, through that whole process. And, like, I'd come from a university that, like, I absolutely love, but, like, I just had never... A, I'd never approached taking a portrait of a stranger. I'd never just candidly gone out to take pictures just for myself. I always felt like there needed to be a really big reason. And then I was like, oh, wait, yeah, you can just go and do that. And, like, that's fine. Um, so, yeah, that was that was quite a big learning curve, I think. So that was a good question.
2: <laughs> that's
0: incredible. Go when on. I was at uni as well, obviously with journalism, um, it was kind of like a similar thing where it would be like there's so much to think about and so much to do when you're like starting to write a feature or starting to, um, make a film. But then actually I think sometimes like that can just make you overthink it so much to the point where you actually, um, I don't know you you need to kind of just do it in the moment don't you and just like just get it done and then just see what
1: happens and I think there's a real thing with like where you're like oh I don't want to put anything out there till it's perfect like I don't want to do my website until I've got this in this position and then it all builds up and then it's this really overwhelming big thing of stuff that you've got to do and like I'm just such a just do it person like I'm just that sounds really weird but like I just um I think I've spent quite a lot of time when I was at uni, really overthinking things. And now I've kind of gone the opposite way of now just being like, oh, I like the image. Let's do that. Let's get it out. Oh, I've got this idea. Let's just do that. Put it out. Because I think as a freelancer, you're constantly having to think on your feet so quickly and so much changes so quickly that like you don't often have time to think. So now I'm kind of like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not saying put everything out that you ever do, but I think just making so, making as much work as you can and then not overthinking it can be a really good thing at the beginning because otherwise you kind of just get stuck and then sad.
2: <laughs> You're so right. When this question came up, I was thinking, how am I going to answer it? And I think I've got my advice from you. So, thanks.
1: <laughs> Super <laughs> well, that's helpful. Good. That's
2: <laughs> You're both talking about your uni experiences. Um, God, I went to uni and thought that, you know, I, kn- I knew everything. And obviously, I didn't. Because I was younger than I felt like I was, um, and everything was going well. Everything was going great, and then I had this guy at the end. He wasn't really, he wasn't actually a teacher. He came in as like, he was like a creative writing fellow, and he basically told me that I was a bad writer, and I was so upset. And it was my final year and everything, and I was just like so crushed. And I didn't write anything for like a year. What? I know, but like then you know, I just thought what, so I just carried on and showed other people, and then they kind of just reinforced that I'm actually all right at it,
1: (laughs) which I'm glad for. But those comments do mean a lot. Like I took one portrait, I remember in my final year and I hadn't taken any portraits all a year. And then my tutor at the time, who was a brilliant tutor, was just like, Lauren, this isn't a good portrait. And I was like, how dare he? And now I'm like, it wasn't. (laughs) Do you know what? In your situation, you probably were a really good writer at that point, but like my, it wasn't a good portrait. And I think sometimes like, I don't know, we need to hear those things or like it kind of spurs you on a bit rather than, I don't know, sometimes it can go the other way and you just lose all confidence, which is obviously awful. But sometimes I think, like, just go going with it and making as much work as you can and putting stuff out there is really good advice.
2: <laughs> I totally agree. Like, too many yeses and too many people telling you you're amazing is, um, it can actually stunt your growth, can't it? More than... Mm, I mean, the, the way he said it... It's not to grow, is it? Absolutely. The way he said it was, was mean, and he did genuinely have it out for me for reasons. But, um... Yeah, I kinda, I'm kind of. i glad because I kind of stopped writing in the way that I'd always been writing and I think I'm a better writer now. So, in case he's listening, which he won't be, he's <laughs> fine. Um, okay, let's spin again. Right, let me get a number. Uh, so we've got 45, which is, if you had £100,000 to give away to any cause, which cause would you choose and why?
1: Ooh. We've never had a question oh. like this before, have we? god that's like a real moral thing um to be totally honest like if you'd asked me this a year ago I would have said something completely different but right now it would be something cancer related um I think um I don't know more specifically just like hospices like I think the crazy thing is is that hospices uh like where people I don't know that are terminally ill are often aren't actually funded by the government. They're all like self-funded and they really rely on donations and stuff. And the hospice where my dad died was an absolutely incredible place and they were amazing. And who'd have thought that you could make the experience of death as nice as it can be and how much it means to people. So I'd probably give a lot of it to hospices. Um, I think I'd also do some kind of climate change thing because like that's something that I'm just absolutely terrified about and trying to do as much as I can to try and like reduce my impact. But I feel like. I don't know, it just, it's such a bigger conversation and problem than, I don't know, I just think people in higher positions need to do more, but maybe giving money to some kind of cause like that would be a good thing. <laughs> That's a really oh, good they're answer. They're both amazing
2: causes. Yeah, they are. What about you, Amelia? I've never actually thought about this before, which is absolutely awful.
0: No, I haven't. Well, to be yeah, fair, it's quite rare that thinking. anyone
1: ever gets that amount of money that they can just give away a <laughs> cause, so... <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh it's so true <laughs> so true i was just thinking i've never thought about like giving it to a cause which is like i'm obviously such an awful person because like, <laughs> i would depend on this um but i think if i if i was giving it to a cause i would i think i'd do something mental health related mm. um because I, I just i'm just so itching to find a way to like reform mental
1: health in the uk because it's just like absolutely shocking yeah it really is and i feel like everything that's come out recently everything that's come out recently like regarding the Meghan markle situation and then um yeah sarah everett who got went missing it's like all so triggering and awful and it makes us realize more than ever that this stuff is just deeply ingrained in our society and we need to there's so much to unpack and sort out and um yeah i think to be fair like I don't know, I was just about to say whatever answer anyone gave to this would probably be a brilliant answer, wouldn't it? (laughs) But Kaya, what would you say? Oh, I was just thinking about this.
2: Um, I think the work that Mermaids Charity do is amazing. So they look after, um, for anyone that doesn't know, they look after gender diverse kids and um, like um, teens that are going through gender dysphoria and they help trans people. Um, I think... The work they do is amazing and sort of gets a lot... If any time any turf, or anyone who just wants to undermine trans rights is on the scene, that charity just gets, like, targeted, um, which it's just so unfair because not only are they looking after trans people, they're looking after young trans people. Um, so mm. that charity means a lot to me, and I've been thinking Mermaids for a while amazing. about... are
1: amazing.
2: Yeah, about ways that I can help them. And um, also... Uh, of course like, over the summer Black Lives Matter a lot more charities came to light mm. um, and ways that we can help them and Black Minds Matter are amazing because um, yep. you know the mental health of black people is is paramount especially right now so probably something totally. like that um, so now we just I need someone... this big
1: pot of money so that we can all get I was just about
2: things. to say so if someone does want to send me their 100k <laughs> like don't worry I will f- I'll give it
1: away <laughs> to good causes <laughs> I think that's a pretty good combination between us.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh right. Oh, I just spanned, didn't I, Amelia? It's your go. Was it my turn? Okay, hold yes, on. Yes.
0: Let me
2: it spin is. it. Every time you spin, you get super close to the camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Twenty seven. Um what would you like your legacy to be?
1: Oh God. Okay.
0: God, these are such big
1: questions i feel like you can't stand oh, up no. Sorry about it um <laughs> my legacy um legacy. i think like photographically i'd like to have a really great archive of documentary photography of um like over over however long i live um that would be pretty great in terms of like a photography point of view um but my legacy in terms of who i am god um I'd like I'd hope that people thought of me as someone that like got stuff done and was kind that would be pretty good. Um question things. I think questioning things is really important. I think a lot of the time it's really easy to just deal with things as how they are. I don't know. I don't think enough of us question enough in the world or politics or industries that we're in. Um so so yeah but that, that's a pretty good question so maybe maybe I need to think about that a bit longer what about you guys <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean I don't think you do need to think about it more yeah but I mean it's <laughs> it good to have in mind uh oh legacy like this is actually weird that this one came up because I was writing an article um I, god this is gonna sound really morose but I think a lot about like what I would leave behind I don't know if it's because when me and Amelia um recorded the first episode of Close Up. One of the questions was how would you like to be remembered? Um so we were thinking a, a bit about legacy then too. Um and I think it's cuz I sort of split myself into two. So I've got like writer me, editor me and then the kind of like modeling me and I find it really difficult to put those two things together because something in my brain is very outdated and finds it hard to imagine that someone would take me seriously as um like an academic person if there's also like a modeling aspect to me which is something that I'm working through and it's like a lot and I was thinking the way that like my legacy would depend on the version of me that somebody met and I thought mm. that's that's quite a sad thing really but outside of work um
1: but like, that just means that you're you've... really multifaceted and you've got like so many different but mm. I don't know I see that as a real positive thing and also I think being in the industry and being a model and then writing and like there's so many different parts to you and how you contribute to the industry I think makes I don't know I think I feel like each part of that then makes the other part better like your modeling experience then means that your writing is better or more informed by that your writing experience then means that you're I don't know I feel like it's like a circle so I think I think that's a really positive thing so it's it's sad that any part of me any part of you thinks that that is I don't know lesser because of the modeling side of it or whatever which is which isn't the case that's so kind honestly
2: it really is and um people people do say to me that I'm being stupid about it but I don't know it's just something in in me I think it's because I've always felt like being a writer is and an editor is like a very serious thing and something that you like have to dedicate yourself to and like being a writer is like this whole like Thing of like you struggle through it, and you know you have to dedicate yourself to it. And then modeling is just kind of something that I'm very privileged to do, and won't last forever. And sometimes, oh yeah, but you know what, models
1: work really hard. Like I think this idea of like someone being pretty and just turning up and just like that's it is just Mm. so outdated and so wrong. Like I think, Mm. I think I I understand what what you mean in terms of like a writer is being the struggle and supposedly more serious, but like. I don't know. I I wouldn't see it like that, but maybe a lot of the rest of the world would. Um but yeah. Amelia, what about you? <laughs> Thank you.
0: Oh, do you know what? I'm really struggling with this. I think like the only thing I can speak to is what I love doing, which is like learning more about people and um Like when you were saying earlier about how it's so funny that, you know, when people go to concerts now, it's like prom. I love like little nuggets into people's lives like that. And I hope if like I do have a legacy, then it's something to do with helping people understand each other a bit more and kind of figuring out that we're actually all pretty similar people underneath it all, really. That's a good one.
1: Um, That's pretty good. Yeah, I don't know. gonna
2: say, you definitely will. But I've forgotten the word for if you make documentaries, what are you called? I'll keep trying, I keep going to say documentarist, but that is not a thing. I don't know, it's not real. <laughs> maybe that's going to be my legacy. I've become a documentarist. <laughs> the first and best documentarist. Yeah, no, your legacy is going to be amazing. You're incredibly kind and talented, so you don't need to worry about oh, that. Uh, and if I, if I outlive you for any reason, which, you know, maybe I will, I'll write you a biography, don't worry, and it'll be extremely <laughs> flattering. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good guys. I'll be here for it oh, oh, I love this plan and yours Lauren don't worry I've also got you <laughs> right okay the last question I think we should do it so I'm just gonna spin this one more time number 33 is when was the last time you said I love you to someone that's
1: very nice oh my god I, I say I love you all the time um, probably this morning to my boyfriend or my mum don't know which one (laughs) um but I think saying I love you to people that you love is really important like I tell my friends I love them all the time and I think like when when my dad was ill like we said it so much my dad was sometimes like he was like sometimes it feels a bit overwhelming like how much love there is and I was like I just felt really glad that like of all the things to feel it was like overwhelming love rather than anything else god I'm getting emotional now um but yeah love's a really powerful thing and I think if you love someone you should say it a lot
2: you can sense how full of love you are you really can like I feel like it's oh. just radiating it really is <laughs> that, that oh, probably that sounds clothes. like super cheesy but no it really is it's true you can tell <laughs> that
0: you you're a genuine lover what about you Amelia? Um, I think I mean I haven't seen anyone since <laughs> since yesterday you can uh, tell so me tell now if you want yeah love you Um, it's probably to to my boyfriend last night to be honest like he says it all the time like at least a couple of times a day which is so sweet so I feel like I need to learn from him and you and just say it more often to all the people that I love
1: well it's um, always nice to so hear beautiful. isn't it I feel yeah, like there's, really not, really many, really there's really not many there's not many times in life where you'd be like, oh, don't do that, unless you actually really didn't want to be with someone, which in which case, totally fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about Absolutely. you, Kaya? God, there's nothing wrong.
2: Uh, God, mine lowers the tone somewhat. Um, my friend and uh, an editor of Aurelia Shahad wrote an amazing piece yesterday about women's safety in the light of um, the Sarah Everard tragedy. Um and she was messaging me, um, you know, and we were just talking about how often we feel unsafe and the things that we do as women that are normalised but are extremely um, not normal. Um, and we just said that, you know, we just told each other that we
1: love each other and we've got each other's backs. Sure. But, um, I read that yeah. and I thought it was brilliant and really well written. Um, and I think, I feel like there's quite a lot of sadness about this situation because it's made a lot of like us remember how as a child like I remember actually there were often assemblies just for girls at my school where the girls were told to stay and all the boys would leave at the end of assembly and then they'd be like just let you know there's been a guy that's potentially getting people into cars on this road so like when you walk back don't go down that road and she li- they literally teach us how to have keys in our hands and walk home and like it was weird I I I just kind of I don't know, I'd never really thought about that. And then that conversation made me just rethink all these things. And I was talking to my boyfriend, and I was like, How messed up is that? And he was like, Really? And I was like, Yeah, we literally had assemblies where we were told, Don't walk down that street and don't wear, like, pull your skirts down so they're not as high and have a key between your hands. And that's just really sad.
2: Mm -hmm. At school, I remember I was speaking to somebody about this earlier. Um, We were taught if we were being attacked to like shout that there was a fire instead of help because people were likely to respond
1: what god it's so weird i know and it's like it like i don't know the fact that we're now all remembering these things and these things probably still happen today in schools and there's probably been very little change and then something like this awful tragedy happening and it's still I don't know, nothing has changed. It's pretty, it's pretty sad. But I think that your piece and saying that, you know, men need to be a part of this conversation is so important because I think it's something that they felt like isn't their problem for such a long time. Um, And Mm. I think it's really important that that's, that's kind of brought to light more. So you guys are doing good work. (laughs) 100%.
2: Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure to have you. It really has you are such an amazing guest.
1: Thank you're you so so such a talented yeah. really
2: talented it. speaker oh thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you I really enjoyed it it's just a shame we couldn't have done it in real life but I feel like in the near future we'll we'll all hang out when things are open
2: <laughs> definitely so thank you so much for joining us Lauren it's been amazing
1: thank you i've really enjoyed it um and yeah hopefully we can all see each other again soon
2: definitely uh thank you for listening everyone uh please do share and subscribe if you enjoyed it and remember to follow aurelia magazine to stay up to date with new episodes and new content we'll be back soon thank you bye